Is there any way that we can just do that again? Holy, holy, holy. praise to you this morning. You are holy. And we can't even begin to comprehend what that means. But we just praise you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you take these words, take your word and speak to us, your people today. May your name increase and my name decrease. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as you take a seat, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. And as you do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for... for gonna have, this is going to be one of those sermons where we're going to have to kind of focus in for multiple reasons. Uh, one... You're going to notice I'm going to have a little less energy kind of coming from the pipes uh, this morning. Um, I've had the flu earlier in the week, and then that turned into an asthmatic spell, um, kind of results after that. And so it, uh, it's been a rough week on the lungs um, there. So uh, I've made it through the first portion of, of the, the race or whatever we call it this morning, um, and then uh, I've got uh, the, the, the cycling coming up next, and then we've got the run later this evening um, with we gather together, and I'm looking forward uh, to our time together tonight over at the Civic Center um, as we will have our, our game show. But uh, today we are back in the book of Exodus, and I am going to be honest with you. The book of Exodus is one of those books that has jumped out and caught me by surprise. <laughs> It's one of those books where you've read it no telling how many times, you've gone through it, you're familiar with the stories. It's kind of like driving down a road that you're used to driving all the time. And then all of a sudden, you see the sunset come up over the mountain, or the sunrise come up over the mountain. And you're just like, wow. Wow. You just want to stop and you want to look. <laughs> You just want to behold it and say, God, yes. And as I've gone through Exodus, it's been one of those spots of just like, yes. And I find myself reading Exodus, I find myself going through it, and it's like, God, you're so good. Israel, you're so dumb. Like, God, you're so sovereign here. You're in control of everything. Israel, you're so 
dumb. It's just like all over the place. God is patient. He is loving. He is good. And then you just see Israel. You're like, what are you thinking? And then I come back and I'm like, God, what is it you want me to learn from this book? And I'm like, oh, snap. I'm Israel. I'm dumb. I'm impatient. I want to approach God on my terms. I want things the way I want them in my life. And God, you're never changing. God, you're always true to your word. God, you're constantly pursuing your people. God, you're constantly demonstrating your love. You're constantly working grace in the lives of stupid people. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, yes. And to set the scene for today where all this goodness and stupidity kind of collide uh, right here. By the grace of God, the Israelites have been freed from their bondage as slaves in Egypt. They're now on their way to the promised land. They're being led by God, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they've made their way um, here to um, Mount Sinai, where they are now encamped at Mount Sinai. Some three months post-Exodus, they have been here. Where God now gives uh, Moses the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And he tells them, okay, go on down and he... Moses tells the people all that the Lord has commanded them. And the people respond back uh, like teenagers. And they say, yeah, I've got this. Everything that the Lord has said, we'll do it. All of it, all the law. We've got this. Our our, our children have said that, right? Yeah, you give them an assignment. I'll do it, I promise. I got it done. We've said that ourselves. But then Moses goes back up the mountain to meet with God. This time he's there for 40 days and 40 nights communing with God. And God's telling him, okay, this is how you're going to build the Ark of the Covenant. This is how you're going to build the tabernacle. This is all the, basically everything that's here in Leviticus. All, all this information here. And, and while he's there, uh, the people grow restless. They grow weary. They go wondering what's happened to Moses. And here are their exact words to Aaron. They, he, they tell him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. What? The stupidity right there, right there, immediately breaking the first and second commandments, not to have any gods before him, not to make any idols, right, breaking them right out of the gate. They've already failed right here. So God knows what's going on below, and he tells Moses, you need to go down there because these people have gone and corrupted themselves. They've made golden calf for themselves to worship and you need to go down there because I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to destroy them myself. This stiff-necked people, I'm just going to destroy them. But what does Moses do here? He intercedes on behalf of the people, pleading with God, remembering, please God, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Remember your covenant with them. But when Moses comes down the mountain himself, He's filled with anger, and he responds in anger. He throws down the tablets that, that God himself has made. He sees the golden calf. He has them burn the golden calf down into a fine powder. Then he takes the powder, and he pours it all over their drinking water. And then he says, drink it down. They're going to drink down the golden calf that they had made to worship. So in needless to say, Moses was a bit ticked off here. God himself is angry here. 
And this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, here being Mount Sinai, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I will drive out all the ites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's telling them, I'll give you the land just like I promised. I'm going to send an angel before you to drive out the inhabitants of this land, but I will not go up among you. Because if I do, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. Calf, golden calf worshiping, stiff-necked people. I'm going to destroy you. And picking up in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, from the, they, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. And ornaments here is referring to jewelry, to fine clothes. See, in the Near East, the ancient Near East, mourning involved both the appearance and the, uh, the attitude. And if you were wearing fine clothes, wearing fine jewelry, it was appearing like you were in a fine mood. You were happy, you were excited, things were going well. So when you were at, in a season of mourning, you would take off your ornaments, you would take off your jewelry, you would dress very plain. You could look at the Ninevites there in the book of Jonah where they put on their sackcloth, they're entering into a season of mourning. This is a people of mourning because of what God has told them. Now again, picking up in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door. And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, pause here. Did did you catch that? Did you catch what was just said here? Verse 11 that, that says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Ha! Yes! Like, this is the spot where, in reading this, I'm like, I just laid me out this week of just looking at this and among other things. And like, I wish we could just camp out here. But one thing we need to realize here is that face-to-face here should be understood as, as an idiom. And by that, it means what an idiom would be is kind of like an expression where you and I would use uh, raining cats and dogs. So when you tell somebody it's raining cats and dogs, that somebody doesn't just run to the window and say, Really? 
Uh, like they don't just go expecting it to actually be raining cats and dogs um, in that moment. But if they do, they, they're crazy. Um, so here, it, it doesn't mean Moses and God are actually looking at one another face to face like you and I would be in a conversation in the hallway. What it's meaning is they have an up-close and personal relationship with one another. It's an intimate relationship that they've had since the burning bush all the way to Mount Sinai. It's an intimate relationship that has not been seen since the Garden of Eden. But it, it did not experience, Moses did not experience a full revelation of God. A full understanding of God. As we'll see, that's more than he or anyone else could begin to handle But here are two words that we need to see in the moment. Two words that brought me deep sadness as I looked at this. Used to. Used to. The Lord used to speak with Moses face to face, but no longer. As Moses comes before the Lord, this is what he says in verse 12. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. He said, God, you said this. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people of the face of the earth? Moses is saying here, if you're not with us, we don't want the land. Please, oh Lord, remember that these are your people, Israel. Remember, remember you promised us your presence, God. You said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So if we don't have your presence, if we're not going to be able to experience this rest, then don't bring us up from this place. Don't bring us from here. How else will we be distinct from all the other nations in the world? How? And then in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses in reply, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Moses is longing for something that he once had, but no longer does. He once communed with God face to face as friends, but no longer And he wants it. He doesn't want the land. He doesn't want possessions. He wants God. He wants the glory of God. And here's how the Lord responds in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, 
Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Again, I like to camp out there too. Wow. Just to be able to see the backside of the glory of God as it passes. As he passes by. So the Lord hears Moses' prayer. He remembers his promise here. He's acknowledging the favor that Moses has in his sight. And he agrees to show Moses his glory. But, but here's the Lord's instructions. He said, okay, I'm going to do this. But this is what you're going to do to prepare for this. He says in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets of the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. Why? He's saying, no one's coming up on the mountain. No one's coming near the mountain. You're not going to let your herds come near the mountain. Why? Because the glory of God is about to descend upon the mountain. And anyone who comes in the presence of the glory of God is going to die. Keep away from the mountain. So Moses cuts two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his, in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, after hearing this, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Because that's what you do when you encounter the glory of God. That's what you do when you behold God. You worship God. He bowed down and he just worshipped. And then in verse 9, after however long, face down before the ground, before God, Moses says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let, the, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So after all that's taken place, after all the stupidity, after all that Moses himself has just experienced, the first things that roll off of his lips when he encounters God is he's petitioning for the people. He's interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. He's coming before God. And he's saying, if I have now found favor in your sight, oh Lord, please, 
please go in the midst of us. Pardon our sin. Take us as your inheritance. Let us be your people, dwelling in your place, dwelling in your presence. Oh God, this is what we want, please. And without Moses serving as their mediator, interceding to God on their behalf, what would happen to the people of Israel? They would be destroyed. Displaying sinful man's desperate, desperate need for a mediator. We need a mediator between God and man. And here's how the Lord responds in verse 10. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now for us to, to really understand what's taking place here, and there is absolutely no way we can cover everything that is here. We've got to shift our minds all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. As we shift our minds back to Genesis chapter 3 where we see because of their sin, Adam and Eve were, were exiled from the presence of God. They were cast out of the garden. They are now no longer God's people living in God's place, resting in God's presence under God's rule. They're no longer walking with God in the coolness of the garden. They're no longer enjoying an up-close and personal relationship with God. It's broken. It's severed. It's been that way ever since Genesis chapter 3. But now we're here at Mount Sinai. Now we're here with Moses. Now we're here with the Israelites, God's people. How are, are they going to enter into God's presence? How are they going to experience his blessings? How is this going to happen? Well, for that to happen, they must come back under God's rule. And this is being accomplished in two ways here in Exodus, both, both the rule and the presence. But one, God is providing them with the law. He's providing them with the law. And two, he's providing them with the tabernacle, which is a symbol of his presence. It's indicating his presence with them. This is the self-defining God, defining how his covenant people can come into his presence, how he can enter into their presence. So let's start with one, the law. Law here and understanding that no one gets right before God by fulfilling the law. No one does. The Israelites don't. We don't. We cannot get right by fulfilling the law. But this is also something we need to remember. We don't become our parent's child because we obey the rules, do we? See, when we see here, the Israelites are already God's people. They're already God's children. God called them out and redeemed them before he gave them the law, didn't he? So they're already his children. So then the question is, then why does he give them the law? <laughs> they're already his children. Why is he giving them the law? Because as God's people, they're expected to live a certain way. They, they are to be holy as our Lord God is holy. You, know, uh, you don't just say to your child, you know, they're born, hey, live however you want to live. No, you're, they're expected to live under certain rules in your home. God's saying, okay, you want to be holy? H here are the rules which you're going to have to live by. 
So he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And he tells them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, kind of reminding them of, of a gospel truth here. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then, so he's telling them, I did this. I redeemed you. I called you out. I claimed you as my people. I delivered you from slavery. Now this is how you shall live. He gives them ten commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have any idols. You shall not use the Lord's, your God's name in vain. You shall, uh, you shall honor the Sabbath and you shall keep it holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. He goes through and he tells them all these things, all these rules. And what we need to realize is it's it's not, it's only, it's only by God's mercy that we know these truths. So sometimes we look at the law and think, oh, it's the law. We think of it as kids with like a to-do list. Like, oh, it's the list. These commandments, the law, are a means of divine grace for God's people. Because God does not leave us to our own sinful devices. He doesn't leave us to figure it out. Instead, he lovingly commands us as a parent lovingly commands a child. Again, he's not saying just go out and live however you want to live. Figure it out on your own. He's setting the standards, saying this is how you are expected to live if you want to be a holy people. This is how it needs to be. And notice how the the first part of the commandments are are all focused upon our relationship with God. The first four are all focused on our relationship with God, and then the next six are all focused on our relationships with one another. But in the relationship with one another, if that is broken, so is our relationship with God. So they're all pointing back to our relationship with God. See, if, we, we, if you commit adultery or you bear false witness against your neighbor, you're not only sinning against your spouse or your neighbor, you're also sinning against God in that moment. If you don't honor your father and mother, you're not just sinning against mom and dad. You're also sinning against God. And parents, just a little side note, This is an awesome way to begin to teach the gospel to your children. Because when they disobey and you sit them down, instead of going straight into the law of punishment, you'll be able to point them back of, it wasn't just you that they offended. They've also disobeyed God. You also begin to break down and to explain the gospel, how they need salvation. That Jesus is their only hope of salvation. We'd love to be able to talk with you more about this. But ultimately, you you want to be holy as the Lord your God is holy? Then you fulfill this law perfectly. Fulfill every bit of it. And when God gave the Israelites these commandments, they immediately agreed, like some naive kids. Yeah, we've got this. We'll do it all. We'll we'll, we'll take out the trash and we'll do this, we'll do that. We'll have it all done by by 3 o'clock before you even get home. But no sooner than they open their mouth, what happens? They fail. And then what happens? Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He goes to God as a mediator between God and man, pleading with God to remember the covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. So for the purpose of the law, when we look here at the purpose of the law, it is to show us how we are to live to show us holiness in practice 
But in doing so, it leaves us with this overwhelming understanding of, I can't do this. I can't do this. I fail at every corner. No, I haven't murdered anybody, but I've said some pretty bad thoughts. No, I haven't, had, I haven't committed adultery, but yeah, I've looked on somebody lustfully. No, I, I, I'm, well, yes, I covet all the time. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I haven't. I do that all the time. I want what you have all the time. That's who we are. That's why commercials work so well, and we don't even realize it. <laughs> this is a good thing, though. This reminder here is a good thing because it makes us aware we come to the point and we say, I can't do this. I can't. It makes us aware that we can't come to God on our terms. We're not coming before him saying, look at me, I got it all figured out. Look at me, I obeyed all ten of them. No, you didn't. You just think you did. We're never going to be good enough. None of us. We need a mediator interceding between us and God. We need someone like Moses crying out on our behalf. So hold that. Hold that thought to the tabernacle. See, the purpose of redemption is relationship. The purpose of redemption is relationship. God's people, starting with Adam and Eve, were created for the purpose of relationship. But a relationship with God, what does it require? The presence of God. Do you have a relationship with your spouse if you have no presence with your spouse at all? No communication, no interaction, no. no. And that's what the tabernacle does. It, it brings God's people into God's presence once again. And quickly, this is up on your screen. You're going to see kind of what the tabernacle looks like. You got a tabernacle, kind of a fenced area around. It's about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. However you want to look at that, you could change the long and the hide or the wide side there. But in the open front courtyard there, you, you walk into that first curtain all Israelites could kind of come into that open area. And you can see little bits of furniture there. But when you enter into the second area, you're entering into the tabernacle. And that first area is called a holy place. That first tabernacle also has some more furniture in there. Only Levite priests from the tribe of Levi could be able to enter into that portion of the tabernacle. Any Israelite other than a Levite priest who entered in there would die. They would not, not live. Then you go and you see a little smaller area called the Holy of Holies. And in there, there's one piece of furniture. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's about three feet wide, about two feet high, and has a cover on top made of pure gold called a mercy seat. And this is where God would, would come and to meet with his people, where the cloud would descend. He would sit upon the, the, the mercy seat. And this is where God would be able to commune with his people. And only one priest, the great high priest, was able to enter into that Holy of Holies once a year. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So when the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire would, would move, when God would say it's time to move camp, what would, the people would pack up the tabernacle, they would pack up everything, and they would move until the cloud stopped. 
And wherever it stopped, they would set up the tabernacle in the center of the camp. The center of the camp. Not outside of the camp like Moses' tent of meeting, but in the center of the camp. And then the cloud would descend upon the tabernacle. The cloud would descend upon the tabernacle and it would be God dwelling in the midst of his people. So picture it. You have the tabernacle with all the other tents, all the other places where all the Israelites are living, all the way around. Everybody's centered around the tabernacle where God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And just let that sink in for a moment. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And their question that should pop in our mind and we should be asking is, how is this possible? How is this possible? How is it possible for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people? I mean, he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sin. He, he, he destroyed the world by flood because of its sin. He, he brought judgment upon the Egyptians because of their sin. And do you remember what God told Moses that he passed by him in the cleft of the rock? Do you remember that? Well, look back with me. Exodus chapter 34, beginning of verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the mystery of the Old Testament. This is the mystery right here of of the Bible because how can this be? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people without destroying them? How? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people without destroying them? We already know the Israelites can't keep the law. We're fully aware that we can't keep the law, or at least we need to be, or again, we fall in the stupid category. We we can't keep the law. No one can keep the law. So there's that problem right there. And then there's this question. How can he forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but at the same time say he will by no means clear the guilty? Aren't the guilty those who have iniquity, transgression, and sin? So how is this possible? How does this work? How can a perfectly good and holy God be both just and gracious to to hopefully sinful people such as us? How? Such as the people of Israel. How? And to get our answer, we need to understand what took place in the tabernacle. We need to understand what's taking place in the tabernacle. See, the tabernacle served as the meeting place between God and his people, but also served as a place where sacrifices were performed. And within the tabernacle, as we saw, was the Holy of Holies. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the proper blood sacrifice. He would enter in with, with, a, with the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat, and he would cover the sins of him, his family, and all of God's covenant people. 
and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil of the most holy place. And this would happen once a year, year after year, year after year on the Day of Atonement, atoning for the sins of the people through the blood sacrifices. And eventually, once in the Promised Land, the tabernacle became the temple. And then the temple, from the tabernacle and the temple, the people of Israel were being taught over and over and over again God's terms of encountering his presence. Saying, you want to enter into my presence? Then you're going to have to do so by the means that God himself has ordained. You're going to have to do it by the sacrifices God himself has commanded, by God's terms, by the priests that he has ordained, by the shed blood he himself has prescribed. And then you come to the New Testament where Jesus says in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And when he says those words, everyone around him goes, what in the world is this man thinking? Has he lost his mind? It took us like 46 years to build the temple and raise it up in three days? He's lost it. Even his disciples are thinking, I have no idea, man. I have no idea what he's talking about. Until, until Jesus rises from the dead three days later. He's crucified, he's buried, and he rises from the dead. And then they understand, I get it. I understand, because Jesus is signifying that the temple that he was referring to was his body. Jesus is the ultimate temple. Jesus is the ultimate meeting place between God and man. Jesus is the ultimate great high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And when he rises from the dead... He becomes the meeting place between God and man. We have access to God the Father through Christ the Son. We have access to God the Father through Christ the Son. So I hear the question. Okay, but how does all that apply for us today? How? I understand the, the Old Testament, but how does that apply for us now? One, Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. Like Moses interceded to God on behalf of the Israelites, Jesus is interceding to God on behalf of his covenant people. Not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of us fulfilling the law. Praise God for that. <laughs> but on the basis of his blood. Which means, which means when, when God looks upon his covenant people, he doesn't see our sin. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> if you are in Christ, if you are among God's covenant people, when he looks upon you, he does not see your sin. What's he see? the blood of Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we come into the presence of God. It's through the blood of Christ that we come into the presence of God. Two, the law is pointing us to Jesus. 
So we must not let the law lead us to despair because of our inability to fulfill it. (laughs) If we want to build our confidence on our ability to fulfill the law, we're, we're going to be shattered over and over and over again. Our confidence should never be in our ability to keep the law. Because even on our very best days, the days that we'll say, I got this, man. I have rocked it today. I I read this morning. I even took some time at lunch today. I did not even cuss at that person when they ticked me off at work today. I just gave them a loving smile of Jesus. And I just kept on going. I I just, it was, yes, I had that day. And guess what? You still failed. Yay, good news. <laughs> you failed miserably. We all fail miserably. Because even on our best days, we fail. That's why I'd rather our confidence must always be not in ourselves, but in Christ. Our confidence is in Christ, who in his perfect obedience, he fulfilled the law for us. He fulfilled every single bit of it perfectly. He lived the life that we were intended to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. And because he rose from the dead, because he rose the temple in three days, he is our dwelling place. He is our ability to come into the presence of God. And this is for this reason. We must find our confidence at the cross of Christ in the empty tomb, not in our flesh. We find our confidence in Christ, in Christ alone. Three, to see the glory of God. To see the glory of God, we must look to Jesus. To see the glory of God, we must look to Jesus and just keep looking to Jesus. We must look to Jesus as he's revealed in the scripture. Not at emotionalism or sentimentalism or a Jesus of our figment of our imagination. We're not talking about Ricky Bobby baby Jesus, Jesus. We're not talking about some cult version of Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible here. So you want to see the glory of Christ? Read the scriptures. Look to the scriptures. It's there. He's there from Genesis to Revelation. You want to find yourself overwhelmed by the greatness and the goodness of God? Read the scriptures with the same eager expectation to see the glory of God that Moses had. Cry out, please show me your glory. When was the last time you went to the scriptures that way? Please show me your glory, God. And then when you do, you you see Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture. Want to be a better parent? Yeah. Want to be a better spouse? Yes. Want to be a better employee, student, friend, church member, person? Yes. Look to Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. I can stand up here week after week and I can give you how to be a better parent, 10 points. I can stand up here and say how to be a better employee, 10 points. And that's going to like be giving me, you, I'm going to give you the law. Here's 10 things you can do and it'll help you out and have you help you have your best life now. Here's how you can make your home a little more palatable and things can be a little bit better and they might 
It's something that we can do. It's something we feel like we can latch on to. But you want to be the best parent you can possibly be. You want to be the best spouse you can possibly be. Fall madly in love with Jesus of the Bible. Know him for who he is. Know him for who he is. Behold God for who he is. And let it transform your life. (laughs) And how you think and how you interact and how you worship. Behold Christ. (laughs) And I just want to keep going, but my lungs say stop. (laughs) Brothers and sisters. chief aim of my life and my desire for for you I want you to know Jesus and I'm not sitting here saying that as somebody saying I don't think you do I'm not saying that I just want to be the mouthpiece that just keeps pointing and fanning that flame and say, let's love him. Let's love him more. Let's know him more. Let, let's, let's drive us and realize we're constant failures. <laughs> we need Jesus. We're not going to come alongside a brother or sister who's struggling and say, just do better next time. No, we're going to come along. We're going to weep with them. We're going to encourage them. And we're going to point them to Jesus. We're not going to go beat somebody up and say, well, you broke the law, get out of the tribe. No. We're going to reach out, we're going to love them, and we're going to intercede on their behalf. We're going to go to Christ, and we're going to be able to point them to Christ. We're going to point them over and over again to Christ, and we're going to love them like Christ loved the church. He died for. Then I can go into a whole thing about husbands and wives, and I'm, again, we've got to stop. I want you to know Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for Jesus. Lord, as we close out this time together this morning, I pray that we will affirm what we've heard today through the singing of your singing and of your word through song. Lord, that if there are decisions that need to be made today if we do not know you for who you really are, if we don't know Jesus for who he really is, Lord, I pray that that individual will not leave here today without wrestling through that. Because we're not here to worship a God of our imagination. We're not not here to worship a God who fits into our box. Because that God is a God of our imagination, Lord. And forgive us for even trying to do such things. Forgive us for being like the Israelites and trying to make our own golden calves. Lord, we want to know you for who you are. We want to behold your glory. And we want to worship you in spirit and in truth.
So have your way, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name.